In today's episode, our guests Cesar Rodriguez Garavito, Alpita Codiveri, and Luisa Neubauer talk with Miriam Zagamas about human rights' potential to fight climate change and environmental degradation. Human rights in times of crises. ECCHR's talk series on resistance and concrete utopias. With our talks, we want to create the necessary platform for actors from all over the world to discuss and advance global human rights struggles. Human rights are a concrete utopia worth defending, but how to defend them needs to be constantly reinvented. As we find ourselves in a time of profound global transitions, human rights actors need to refer to prevailing inequalities and the underpinning social questions. We initiated an event series that is now available as a podcast to rethink the struggle for and around human rights. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to ECCHR event series, Human Rights in Times of Crisis, of Resistance and Concrete Utopias. Um, this event was actually planned back in 2019, together with our cooperation partner, the Federal Agency for Civic Education, obviously as an uh, event in presence together with workshops, because even by that time we were aware that we as human rights organizations are facing a multiple and very complex global crisis, climate crisis, uh, crisis of uh, water, of food, growing authoritarianism, which requires a new discussion with new actors, with other actors than the very close human rights community. And obviously, with the current uh, pandemic crisis, it became even clearer that a conversation is needed. Um, we are hoping that at some point in the upcoming months, we will be able to fulfill our function as ECCHR to serve as a platform, as a hub for actors beyond Germany, beyond Europe, beyond law, an interdisciplinary mixed uh, coalition of people. But as Alejandro Ancheta from Mexico said, we have to maintain our internationalist spirit. And so we have to bridge until this time has come. And so this is why we decided to aggregate one more uh, online um, conference series to the endless series where we're having already. We want to talk about the role of human rights in the fight against climate change. And we want to discover the relationship between activism and human rights lawyering. I will introduce to you now our panels for today, uh, guests on the panel, sorry, for today. So we have um, Arpita Kodiveri, um, who is a human rights lawyer and a doctoral researcher in law at the European University Institute in Italy. She researches land conflicts and legal mobilization by forest-dwelling communities in Indian mining areas. We are very happy to have you. Then also, we have Luisa Neubauer, who is Fridays for Future coordinator and organizer and one of the most prominent members of the German branch. Currently, she's enrolled in a master's degree on resource analysis and management at uh, the University of Göttingen. Welcome, Luisa. 
And then last but not least, we have César Garavito, who is um, a well-known human rights and environmental law scholar and practitioner. He is co-director of the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at New York University, and he is editor-in-chief on Open Global Rights. His work focuses on global governance, climate change, socioeconomic rights, and business and human rights. Welcome, César. So, um, yes, the topic we have today is, is obviously a very big one. The man-made climate change crisis is one of the most pressing crises that humanity currently faces. It is the consequence of our capitalist economic model based on high carbon intensive industry on resource extraction. And it puts very much into question not only the existence of uh, our planet as we know it, but in particular, I think it puts into question our economy and um, the Western way of life of consumerism. And obviously, uh, I think something that sh should have uh, realized by now everyone, it warrants a deep and fundamental change. And um, from my perspective, what human rights, you know, you, I think what, what we'll need to discuss today is the question, well, to some extent, the urgency of this crisis is um, scientifically so well proven that it's really the question, why would we need human rights to fight for changes? Um, and I guess from our perspective, you know, one, obviously, human rights language gives certain credibility, certain value to the claim against governments to acknowledge cli the climate crisis and to act accordingly upon it. And I think the second aspect, which I am from uh, my perspective is also equally, if not even probably more important now, is that human rights do put a framework and give language to demands on governments again, and but also on corporations, on how to act upon this crisis, on how to implement government policies. Um, and I think that's a very classic um, um, you know, value of that human rights brings. So to some extent, I would say that human rights offer the opportunity to bring social questions into the discourse of um, climate justice and environmental justice, which, you know, may sometimes risk, bear the risk of, you know, turning into the question of purely technical solutions to questions of, you know, for example, reduction of carbon emissions. But, um, but yes, I would want to, to give you the chance, um, probably also to our panelists, to, to do some things. And so what do you think is the added value of, of human rights? Um, Cesar, do you want to probably start with that? Thank you, Miriam. I wanted to start by thanking ECCHR for organizing this panel. It really is a pleasure to be part of this panel, especially given that uh, Arpita and Luisa, very distinguished panelists, are also uh, with us. So I would say that human rights contributes two key elements to climate action. One, uh, you already alluded to, uh, Miriam, which is a language, uh, which is a language that embodies, that concretizes climate harms. I have a, a paper and a book that I'm publishing documents how the environmental movement saw very early on in the, in the first decade of this century that human rights could be a very powerful tool to advance arguments that were falling on deaf ears because back then climate change was seen as a scientific abstract environmental concern 
with limited impacts on human beings. So it was an issue of that the supposedly affected polar bears as opposed to uh, human beings. But towards the 2010s, and then decisively, uh, in the, about five years ago, around the Paris Agreement uh, negotiations, the environmental community pushed the human rights movement to take human rights implications of climate change seriously. And that's when the turning point uh, happened that led us to successful litigation like the one that uh, Luisa has been part of in Germany with this landmark decision of the German Constitutional Court just uh, a couple of months ago. And then the second element that uh, human rights contributes to uh, the climate struggle is an architecture, institutional architecture. Human rights advocates organizations from the Global South and the Global North have been working for decades, constructing with some governments this human rights architecture that takes the form of courts like the European Court of Human Rights, Inter-American Court of Human Rights, but also the UN human rights bodies that are there to be mobilized for the purpose of prompting governments and corporations to do the right thing. So it was by seizing the opportunities of this already existing architecture that climate activists and human rights advocates came together to create the momentum that we're luckily seeing today. Thank you, Cesar. Yes, you already mentioned um, that uh, Luisa has been one of the claimants in the successful constitutional court claim um, on, on climate change that just came down. Luisa, why, you know, what, what was your motivation, not just individually, but also as Fridays for Future, to say you want to be engaged in, in this such a human rights claim? Uh, yeah, hi. Thank you for the question and thank you for having me. And so uh, it's great to be here with you. I think there has been a, you could call it societal, but maybe it's even a philosophical misunderstanding in especially Western uh, worlds, what climate protection, climate mitigation, climate action is really about. And for decades, protecting the environment was considered to be something um, you would do for charity. That was a good deed. Protecting the birds as in somewhat of an equivalent to giving some children some sweets. It's something you, you do when you have time and money and see something you don't do if you have anything better or more important to do. And um, it's only been in recent years, and I think maybe even Fires of Future has played a part in that, that this fatal misunderstanding got twisted and turned around and shifted towards the understanding that what eventually this is about is about saving us from ourselves and from uh, the dangers we put ourselves in. And by we, I explicitly, of course, mean mostly white uh, powers of the global north. And then, of course, there's a different dimension when it comes to global south and global north justice. justice. So in this understanding, of course, that everything uh, we do in terms of the climate crisis is not a favor which would do to the climate or the atmosphere, it changes our understanding of um, what kind of legitimacy we have. And um, this brings uh, this brought us and brought me to a point where we really thought about the injustices that we are seeing and the lack of the, the lack of legitimacy um, that the climate crisis has. So, of course, it was a very natural step for us to, as, as soon as we acknowledge that what is being done is actually harming our rights and human rights and our rights to future and freedom and so on, the logical step for us to also go to court as we are trying to do everything we can. And this was one piece of the puzzle. 
I would at that point really um, want to emphasize on the point that there is a, a incredible barrier when it comes to the acknowledgement of human rights around the world. People do not fight for the rights that they don't know they have. And for a long time, people suffering from environmental degradation, suffering from the climate crisis, suffering from the perspective even of an escalating climate crisis, they didn't know they had a right to a safe planet. Thank you. Um, Arpita, yes, Luisa just also nicely described sort of how probably environmental degradation has been a topic for longer and how indeed to some extent probably for, for um, in, in Europe, it's, as you said, it is, is uh, seen as a charity. I think I could, um, from what I would see, but I could see that this perspective is different if you're coming from the global south, where um, from my experience, the connection between human rights and environmental fights are quite close. But, but maybe you can explain us a bit from your perspective. What do you think about this? Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Uh, at the outset, I just want to say a huge thank you for having me. And it's so great to be a part of this panel. So I think both Cesar and Luisa really laid the groundwork of the potential that human rights has in providing a vocabulary and a language. But now what does that sort of, uh, you know, that language mean in the global South and in contexts like India? So one of the, I feel one of the big legal gains in the environmental legal movement in India has been a sort of rights-based approach both to conservation and impacts of environmental degradation. Whether you look at indigenous communities or Adivasi communities who've been struggling for their rights over land, there's always been an intrinsic link between rights claiming that happens through the human rights sort of framework, as well as this neatly tying in with uh, ecological questions. But that's not to say that it's been entirely a story of coexistence. There are also fissures that do happen uh, because colonial forest policies, as well as the history of exclusionary conservation, has led to the violation of the human rights of a lot of communities who depend on these ecosystems. So that has been sort of a human rights pushback, but at the same time, with the growing arguments of the rights of nature and the discourse around uh, non-human rights, It's sort of uh, percolating these older fissures again, whether there is a human rights uh, approach that can sort of reach some kind of reconciliation between these competing ideas or not. Uh, so much more to discuss later, but I just want to leave it at uh, this sort of two-pronged sort of uh, value addition that human rights has. One, I think it, if we kind of look at how Karen Zivi argues that rights are sort of rights claiming, It allows uh, marginalized communities to occupy space within the law and state their claims. Uh, depends whether they go to court or they do it through protest. So I think human rights in that sense has been a lived reality and has been a part of a lot of mobilization here, which I think can contribute to the growing uh, discourse on human rights and the climate crisis. Thank you. Very, very interesting. I indeed, I do hope we, we talk a bit more about this. Um, later on, when we come probably also to what, what the challenges of, of uh, human rights um, in, in the regard to climate change are right now. But um, Cesar, I think you elaborated um, on the momentum that we can see 
that it has been developing in climate change. And maybe maybe you take a bit more time even to, to describe this, but, you know, we've been sort of only in Germany and the neighboring Netherlands, you know, the last three, three months probably have been very exciting. So you see constitutional courts um, um, uh, granting um, rights to citizens um, as their rights are being violated by, by, um, by inactive governments or not sufficiently active governments. So um, do you think we've won the argument that governments are obliged by human rights to act on the climate crisis? I think there's definitely momentum. And it's a momentum that's been building up since at least 2015. Again, in the study that I referenced earlier, I documented around 70 cases that were filed between 2015 and 2020 that basically laid the groundwork for the type of victories that the movement in Germany recently achieved remarkably before the constitutional court, especially in Europe. And I'll be happy to provide the link to the study in case people are interested, because after 2020, this became an avalanche. And now in my study, now we count almost 100 cases that are squarely based on human rights arguments. So the climate litigation has been around for 20, 25 years now, but the use of human rights arguments, meaning the concretization of climate harms in the form of uh, people displaced from their places of dwelling, people losing you know, crops, losing their uh, right to family, right to privacy, right to life, uh, rights to uh, right of, right of future generations, all of that is more recent. And definitely there is momentum and around 50% of those cases are being litigated, as you said, Miriam, in, in Europe. Importantly, the Global South has had key litigation early on in 2016 in Pakistan, also uh, litigation happening in Colombia, in India, and elsewhere. It is tempting to conclude that the argument has been won as a result of this a very promising trend. But I think that that would be premature for two reasons. First, because ultimately we as uh, human rights scholars and, and practitioners care, and, and, and certainly people like Luisa, but I let her speak to this issue herself, care about the outcome, the impact, not just a, a fantastic piece of paper with a fantastically argued ruling like the one that the uh, German Constitutional Court produced a couple of months ago. That's a crucial step. But in the end, the, the, the assessment needs to be made based on whether governments and corporations end up cutting emissions to in half by 2030, achieving net uh, zero emissions by 2050 in line with science and in line with what's needed to avoid a truly catastrophic planet for uh, future generations. And then, and the, and the uh, jury is still out on whether this is going to happen or not. Finally, what I would say is that it is absolutely crucial uh, that uh, strategic litigation based on human rights arguments against climate inaction involves and is done in partnership or, or in very close collaboration with social movements. So what's particularly encouraging to me coming from other forms of uh, litigation and, and advocacy in the past on socioeconomic rights, for instance, is that in the climate space, organizations like Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, 
uh, indigenous peoples in the Amazon region has have really been in at the forefront of many of these cases, for example, currently in Brazil. So it's not a technical issue left to lawyers to solve or to push forward. If that were the case, and I said as a lawyer, would be uh, this uh, this uh, battle would be lost because, of course, it is in the end direct mobilization, political mobilization, bottom-up mobilization that would push very powerful actors all the way from governments to fossil fuel companies, to soybean production companies in the Amazon, in the Brazilian Amazon, to uh, be accountable for the climate harms that they produce and to stop polluting the planet uh, in ways that will make it unsustainable for future generations. Um, yeah, Luisa, do you want to probably, you know, add on this or respond? So what what are you as Fridays for Future planning on doing with the constitutional court ruling? Are you are you satisfied for it with as of now? Sort of or what, you know, um, or do you also see some downsides of the of the of the judgment? Actually, I, I would be interested in that. Or, you know, you have some issues where you feel, well, this needs to go further. Well, first of all, of course, I cannot be satisfied about a victory against my own government. That's like, I, I wish it was, it's my government too. And so I wish there wasn't the need for me to go to, to court against my own government. That's not something you you want to do, you know, living in a democracy. And so, of course, it itself is a huge thing, yet it's also a tragedy um, that this had to happen and that the court explained how how bad of a job, the, yeah, what a bad job the government does. Well, as mentioned before, it's certainly, however, of course, some kind of revolutionary um, ruling And the question, I think, is, of course, what do we do with it internally? And it will be for us, of course, that the one the one decision we will come back to again and again and again, um, asking the government to learn from that. Yet I think equally important, of course, is what do we do in terms of, you know, using this precedent to force further governments towards climate justice? And I think that is a very exciting thought. Um, as being pointed out before. There is, of course, this awkward situation that we are in in Germany that the government has made very clear that it, in fact, has not very much understood what this ruling is about, as, in fact, the Constitutional Court redefined what is freedom in the climate crisis. And that is a very, very big deal. And the the, the response of the government was basically to go back and, 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 and work in the same pattern as it did before, so the court got the government to a point that it again, you know, decided on a insufficient climate target and insufficient me measures without any acknowledgement that today we need to think drastically different about what does it mean to provide safety and freedom for people in democracies in the 21st century. Thank you. Yes. Well, maybe maybe we stay we stay with that well with that ruling or with the language of human rights. And and I want to turn to the question. Um, indeed, the Constitutional Court um, said you know um, that the potential rights violations of the rights of freedoms um, of future generations are in danger. And obviously that's important. And it's it's as you said, it's revolutionary that they're also taking into account future right or the the rights of of uh, persons living in the future. But aren't we? Shouldn't we also be a bit concerned about um, a very European Western approach to human rights, which is individualistic? So which means it's individual rights that I can claim. 
And um, is it not needed that we also think a bit more of broadening the human rights language more towards, you know, more holistic concepts? And I think probably, uh, I mean, maybe Arpita, you, you can speak about this because I think especially communities uh, and also especially, I guess, indiv indigenous communities in themselves don't think in terms of their individual rights necessarily as we probably here in Europe would conceptualize them. And, and you know, what is, what is that approach probably? Or, you know, is there something that we in Europe can learn? Right. So I think in terms of sort of a collective approach to human rights, I do think that advances have been made with group rights in general. But I do think there is a, a challenge with understanding, uh, sort of putting a very apolitical reading of what that collective means. Because a lot of my fieldwork has shown that even indigenous communities, uh, they sort of have multiplicity of interests. While, uh, and I think a collective framing of rights as a community enables them to sort of, uh, you know, negotiate and come together and build consensus, which is very interesting when one is trying to mobilize human rights. So what kind of rights do they choose to mobilize? Uh, whether it's cultural rights or socioeconomic rights, that sort of becomes a collective uh, framing. And I think that's something that we can definitely learn because I, I, I perhaps fear that individual rights might further create very divisive ways in which we might be using human rights and making these claims. And I think a more coll collective framework will uh, engender consensus building, uh, both in terms of uh, how legal mobilization happens, as well as, uh, you know, stemming from the momentum that already exists. And I think with uh, future generations, uh, there is a sense of a collective. And I think the collective perhaps is a bit difficult for us to imagine, but I do think that it is in a sort of a group framing, which is uh, fairly broad. And I do see hope uh, in that, uh, as well as the rights of nature, because there the community is, is more of uh, looking at the ecosystem and the interconnections that we have uh, with the non-human world. Cesar, do you, um, do you want to speak on that also because you, you come from the Colombian perspective and in Colombia there's been some, some important decisions also made on the question of rights of nature and then also process rights of communities determine, right? What are the rights of nature? So, so do you think that this is something we should, we should also probably learn from in Europe? Yeah, there is. Uh, there are a few gaps and voids as in in any field of uh, social change and strategic litigation that are quite evident in the climate litigation uh, field. Uh, and I'll speak to rights of nature in a moment. But uh, there are a couple more that I wanted to highlight. First, there's very little litigation against corporations. So it's been mostly governments that have been held accountable. Uh, for good reasons, of course, there, as Luisa said, this is, these are, these are actual government that are supposed to protect rights by design, by definition, and they, and yet they're postponing the protection of those rights or outright violating them by not, by continuing to, for example, to promote fossil fuel extraction around the world. So that, but uh, only 10% of the cases that have been litigated anywhere around the world on human rights grounds, uh, on climate action, 
have been filed against corporations. A recent victory in, in the Netherlands against Shell, uh, in which a court mandated Shell to comply basically with the targets of climate of a greenhouse gas emission reduction that science advises in order to avoid the worst scenarios of climate change. That is a key precedent still probably will be appealed. So it's not firm, but it's a crucial step forward. And yet there's a whole range of corporate actors that continue to actively go directly against uh, what humanity needs to do to avoid the, uh, the worst versions of the climate crisis. Second uh, gap is litigation on adaptation. So the Global South actually is responsible for, of course, as we all know, relatively small percentages of uh, historical carbon emissions. Of course, countries like India or China these days uh, contribute considerably to, or Brazil to, the, to carbon emissions. But historically, they're nowhere near the US or uh, Europe, but they will be the worst hit by the impacts of climate change. Everywhere, you know, countries from the Caribbean to the Pacific Islands uh, to South Asia uh, are already suffering the very direct and dire impacts of climate change. So in, in, in Arpita's country, in places like Chennai, uh, the region, whole regions of the world will probably be uninhabitable uh, the second half of this century because of the sheer heat uh, that humans and all species will have to suffer in, in those places. So there needs to be more action on adaptation, meaning having governments and corporations pay for the cost of adapting to the already inevitable effects of climate change, especially in the global south. And finally, rights of nature as a, as a new frontier. I think that this is certainly uh, gaining momentum. And it's not only in Latin America or, or New Zealand or India, but these arguments are being brought to court uh, very seriously around the world. And I think as Arpita said, that this is a crucial step forward because it means moving from an anthropocentric logic of protection of rights to an ecocentric logic of rights, which in the end is in tune in line with what we know from science uh, about how and how ecosystems work. Human beings are, of course, are not independent from the, the rest of, of the planet. And it is by protecting the life, the existence, the integrity of trees, of water systems, of, of rivers, of oceans, um, that we have any chance of living an, uh, uh, an inhabitable planet for future generations. Yes, thank you. Thank you for this uh, very um, useful overview and also for, for showing where the gaps currently are in terms of where, where we focus our litigation. So when it comes to corporations, we've had in the series, um, had Alejandra Ancheta from Mexico speak to us and also um, and one of our other colleagues. And they are helping an indigenous community um, in Mexico to claim their rights to free prior informed consent and their land rights against a French company, against um, the French um, um, energy giant EDF, which, and here's probably, I don't know if it's ironic or tragic or what it is, which is actually building wind parks. So which is going to sort of, you know, trying to get into green energy or is in green energy, which is something that probably is very, uh, you know, very, we all support. 
Um, and I think that's also, um, and as you said, you know, I also had to think about this, César, when you said about adaptation, and that's also what I meant about, you know, is probably also the, the potential for human rights to bring into social aspects into how we're going to adapt this. Because I guess, you know, all big corporations um, are now by now claiming that they are going to, in, to go into energy neutrality and that they will be, you know, um, car, you know car, um, as I said, carbon neutral by 2030, 2040 or so. Even, even automotive industry is claiming that. But, um, you know, do we probably also take a close look on how they do it? Because building a wind park or expelling indigenous communities from, um, from national parks so that nature can, can recreate but, and the indigenous people need to leave who never contributed to the crisis, that's uh, something, for example, minority rights is also working on, really is not the solution. Um, so, Louisa, what, what do you say? What, what, what do you, are you demanding of corporations? And, and what do you think is, uh, yeah, what's, what's the claim of, of Fridays for Future in that regard? And also, how, you do, how do you deal with this tendency of policies to go, yes, it's all about green energy, maybe no matter what, or, you know, so... Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I, I was really um, inspired, and I, I very much second what we just heard about. You know, the complexity of the issue and how we need to acknowledge that uh, that complexity also when we think about methods to to achieve climate justice. And there is this tendency of, especially like the court rulings you've been seeing in the past, that they do attempt to take this multidimensional complex issue and put it in some kind of linear logic, which is what the constitutional court, you know, didn't quite do. They did, they did talk about the, the ethics um, behind freedom and climate justice, yet at the same time, it allowed the governments to opt out and reduce all of that um, meaningful ruling to some kind of CO2, um, CO2 reduction um policy and that is dangerous as we we there is a, a, a need to talk about CO2 reduction of course yet it's just really one puzzle piece of um of the whole issue that we're looking at and as soon as we get into the question of okay how do we do actually conserve nature and what does nature conservation even mean knowing that the way we talk about nature conservation is something that we you know that is very much shaped and, and formed by colonialists uh, ideals of what is nature and what is not nature and who we are in nature. And um, it's the same accounts for when it comes to protecting and acknowledging um, indigenous rights and indigenous lands. That is not something you can, you know, boil down to some kind of CO2 measurement and some CO2 calculation, but it really comes to um, our understanding of power and hierarchy. Ideally, the, the the need to cons to conserve or to at least stop mass extinction will force us into the point where we understand that um, climate action is not just about um, reducing CO two, but about challenging and questioning our very own way of living and being on and with this world. And this is um, an interesting question when it comes to cooperation. And coming back to your question there, because we did see this landmark ruling against Shell. We did see action going on about Chevron. We had, um, with Fridays for Future, we had big action against Siemens and so on. So we do see that there is a conflict growing, and I think that can be a very productive conflict. But of course, and I think we need to also be clear about this, corporations that have grown to become those mega um, superpowers 
partly, arguably powerful than more powerful than some countries, they will get whatever they can get. And there is no climate justice ethics behind it. And they will not care about what is right or wrong. And they will care about what they are allowed or legitimized um, to do. And so it's great if there is investment in, in clean energy, but we need to, you know, it, it usually reproduces the power and um, rubbery-like mechanisms that produced this um, crisis in the first place. So I think we would need to be very, very careful how we fight, what we fight for, and um, the pathways that we create in terms of actually shifting our um, ways of living from fossil to well post-fossil but that will be tricky and i think and um, the example you just gave um approves it how and um, how tangled that is and that that is not a linear linear pathway there and it's not a we're not at the stage where everyone is trying and some are trying harder and some are trying less hard eventually we will have to really redefine under which kind of rules under which kind of norms we want to live and coexist and I very much hope that this um, this redefining will be led by those who've been suppressed, who've been struggling, who've been who should be leading this fight, and who have, you know, who know so much more um, about what sustainability and sustainable living is actually what it's actually about. And in particular, I of, of course refer here to indigenous knowledge and indigenous nations um, about global south and um, about the global south we call it mapa so most affected people and area yeah i think you you've you've very well described the the challenge that we have or and that we cannot simply hope for a voluntary turn no which which is which is not just um CO, you know, like some either greenwashing or actual CO2 emissions, which does not equal to real change, no, and to substantial change. I think you described this very powerfully. Um, and you also described probably the opportunity that there is in using human rights language to actually also put question to power, no? But um, Arpita, maybe maybe you want to speak about also your um, on, on on your research and your experience on how um, indigenous communities are fighting against the government. I, I, I don't know probably if it's in mining areas, probably also against the mining companies themselves, who are a lot of times major emittents, or they are major emittents. And obviously that's, that's a huge unequal struggle, no? So yeah, maybe you can also explain a bit more about how mobilization has been working around there and what, what the perspective is. And Again, maybe maybe I'm asking too much at one question, but also maybe you can also explain a bit more about this idea of rights of nature. Because I have to say, the first time we discussed that in our office, some of my colleagues said, like, what is that kind of esoteric concept? <laughs> this has nothing to do with rights. And then, we, you know, we went into this gut, which just, you know, I, I love all my colleagues. They're wonderful. But which really shows that it's a very un unusual thought for lawyers being trained in Europe <laughs> that you would consider, you know, nature in relation to the human being as, as a right. But um, yes, Peter, maybe you can speak on that. Sure. That's quite a handful of questions. Um, so just to sort of uh, begin with my own fieldwork and what I've observed with legal mobilization. So one of the areas that I visited is where there's an expanding coal mine and um, the Indian laws are structured as such that the state has complete control over the acquisition of land. 
and dispossessing, continuing to dispossess uh, the forest-dwelling communities. So in such a tight context, um, their ability to hold corporations accountable has been much more uh, sort of in the setting of these kind of micro-legal interventions. So trying to go to the local bureaucracy to ask for better terms of compensation, as well as going to courts, uh, you know, to uh, kind of challenge the expansion of the coal mine. And they're using a lot of intersections of human rights and environmental law, which is very fascinating. So in some sense, you know, they sort of, their argument is that the expanding coal mine is both harmful to the environment as well as their human rights. And it's been a challenge. Uh, they've had very, very small wins because in such a, a context, it's very difficult to define what success looks like. So I think uh, my interviews, a lot of them narrate about how just being able to hold the state accountable for better terms of compensation and being able to realize that is itself a, a, a win. So it, I think it's quite particular to these contexts and uh, you know the kind of uh, choices and legal opportunities that are available to these communities to be able to hold corporations accountable. But there are success, uh, you know, larger sort of one may call it, uh, you know, discursive wins where there was a case which I looked at where uh, the indigenous community managed to push uh, out a mining company from acquiring its uh, sacred mountain. And this was, uh, you know, based on free prior and informed consent. So this is where I feel like the procedural aspects of human rights also come in really handy to be able to secure uh, the rights of uh, Adivasi and indigenous peoples. To speak the, the rights of nature, uh, and I think Cesar will have a lot more uh, to add. It's it's an area which I kind of arrived at uh, based on the interviews that I did with these communities because they sort of identified the language of rights, both in terms of human rights, but also as it being relational to the forests and to uh, the areas that surround them. So I guess in some sense, it's the coming together of stewardship, as well as this idea that one belongs to a larger ecosystem. So it's not like their rights operate in isolation of the rights of the forests or the other ecosystems. And that's uh, an interesting idea. And I think jurisprudence, uh, like the jury is still out on the logistics of implementing something like this because it can also go on to exclude uh, these communities because one can then see the you know the colonial notion of uh, conservation again being replicated under the language of the rights of nature so it's a very uh, tricky question and who represents our nature is still uh, uh, again a difficult question but i do see hope in this idea of stewardship and uh, you know, this idea of biocultural communities being able to articulate uh, the rights of nature and secure rights of stewardship. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to hear what Cesar has to say, because he's been doing a lot of thinking on this as well. Yes, yes please, Cesar. I, I would be also very interested to, uh, to hear your opinion and thoughts on this. Sure. Yes, this is a crucial question that speaks to the new challenges and also the limitations of human rights language and, and the architecture. Because so far, of course, we've been focusing rightly on the potential of uh, the existing language and the 
institutional venues that human rights, the human rights world offer to the climate, to climate action and to climate activists. But of course, human rights is only one of the languages of social justice and it has limitations of its own. And with regards to issues like the rights of future generations or rights of nature, you know, it, it inherits the limitations of Western modernity. So it, it is, it is a, a, a framework inherited from a, a Western uh, liberal enlightenment. And uh, for all the uh, contributions that that worldview has made, to realities or to uh, developments like democratic societies and so on. Of course, it also has its own limitations. I'll, I'll speak to the two specific issues that I just mentioned, the rights of future generations and the rights of nature. With regards to the rights of future generations, if you look at the, at the text of the main declarations, conventions, treaties of human rights that have made, made crucial contributions to a, a more humane world for the last 75 five years. So next year, we have the uh, beginning of the celebration of the 75th anniversary of the UN uh, Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Despite all, all those contributions, there's very little, if anything, in those texts about the rights of future generations. Someone uh, whose work I admire greatly, George Monbiot, uh, a British author and an op-ed writer at The Guardian, once wrote that uh, in a conventional interpretation of human rights text, the current generation could fulfill everyone's uh, rights, the rights of those alive today, and yet leave no planet for the future generations. And I think that this is not an exaggeration because back in 1948, um, the drafters of those uh, rights were thinking about the huge inequalities around the world that unfortunately, are still with us. The violation of rights of women, of, of, of religious minorities and so on. But they weren't really thinking about the rights of future generations, uh, the rights of those who uh, have yet to be born. Indigenous peoples on the one, on the other hand, have been thinking about the idea of the good ancestor, of having, of leaving uh, a, a good planet, an inhabitable planet uh, for as long as they've been uh, around. So. It's taken 75 years to the human rights community to come around to this view. And sadly, my generation was the one that had a chance to do this more in a more timely fashion because 30 years ago, we knew from very public testimonies of scientists like Jim Hansen in the US in the late 1980s that we were dis destroying the planet. And we were the first generation to know that we were destroying the planet. And yet, it's taken us. 30 more years and, 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 and the impetus coming from uh, movements like Fridays for Future for my generation and uh, to uh, start to do what we should have done uh, 30 years ago. So that's one, one challenge, the rights of future generations. I see a lot of potential I, and uh, judgments like the one from the Constitutional Court of, of, of Germany cr make crucial contributions uh, uh, to this to this new frontier of human rights advocacy. And then the second frontier that I see a lot of movements, uh, certainly indigenous movements, again, they haven't done this only for the last 10 years or so, but for the last 10 centuries, uh, mainstreaming the idea that human rights rely on interconnection. And you know, I can't avoid in a, in a panel organized sort of 
Berlin to mention Alexander von Humboldt, so who was the first Western scientist to see what indigenous wise people had seen for a long time, which is that we live in a web of life, as uh, von Humboldt put it, meaning that everything is interconnected. And scientists over the last 15, 20 years have given us very, very concrete findings. They have very concrete uh, clues about how this works. Uh, I'll, I'll end by mentioning one specific initiative that illustrates this with um, colleagues uh, from uh, biology and botany, uh, experts in, in fungi, in the fungi world. Uh, I will I mention two books that I think that uh, anyone interested in the intersection of human rights and and the rights of nature should be reading. One is uh, uh, titled Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, which really presents the world from the point of view of fungi of underground uh, networks. And the other one is Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Seymour, uh, the scientist who first tracked down the way in which um, trees communicate with each other and have sentience through mycorrhizal fun, uh, networks the wood wide web, as, uh, as uh, Nature Magazine calls. Those and many other findings show us that, in fact, in reality, even by Western scientific standards, human beings are interconnected, not just with each other, but with the rest of, of, of the planet, with quote-unquote nature, uh, as you know, Western science used to call it, anything that's not uh, human. So from my point of view, what's what's what are what some courts uh, organization activists are doing in advocating for the rights of nature is to update law to the level that uh, even Western science, let alone indigenous window, wisdom, has shown that in reality, as Lisa said, the world is not linear. The world is not uh, made of uh, isolated atoms but uh, rights need to be put in the context of relationships with the non-human world. Thank you, um, Cesar. I think you've, you've very powerfully described, as you said, you know, how we as lawyers need to update law. We as human rights lawyers also need to be um, more thinking in interdisciplinary ways and taking into account, as you said, both, you know, science coming from other areas uh, like biology and not from law. Um, but also take into consideration indigenous wisdom so, so that we can actually grasp the complexities no, of that, uh, that the, the climate crisis really shows to us and so that we can also try to, you know, try to develop a human rights law that has a more comprehensive answer to the complexities that you, you've wonderfully, and also Arpita, that you really uh, described right now. We're coming to, to the close to, of, of this session. Um, and I, I have a question, first of all, to you, um, Luisa, but I think also Apita and, and Cesar should, should really feel free to comment. And that is, um, in the first session of the series, uh, Wolfgang Kalek and Alejandra Ancheta and Joshua Castellino, they discussed um, on how the on human rights law and human rights lawyers, or even the human rights movement, needs to stay relevant for social movements. And um, and so so Luisa, what would it mean for you that uh, how how do how would the human rights movement or human rights lawyers be relevant for for Fridays for Future? What what is your ideal idea you know idea relation you know ideal view of the relationship? Do you mean the Fridays for Future should stay like 
No, 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 no. The challenge is that we feel the human rights movement needs to be relevant Ooh, to movements. Yes. So what is, and I'm sure you, you know, not being a human rights lawyer, That's have some sense. thoughts on this. And this is what I'm very interested. And then I'm also, of course, interested in the thoughts of, of the lawyers here in this round. But, but of course, first of all, you. And, and please be, feel free also be critical. We, we, want, we want to hear this. Well, yes, actually, my sister happens to be a human rights lawyer. So I had, um, and she's quite a bit older than I am. So we had these discussions as long as I can think, given that what, what you know, deriving from my from my, what I mentioned earlier, people won't fight for the right, rights they don't know they have. And this is, this, it is the same situation for social rights as it is for environmental rights. And it's in environmental rights, it's maybe even a bit trickier because you need to um, draw lines and connect the dots. And there is this obvious expectation for, you know, climate movements to also argue in, in the light of um, human rights. But for a long time, well, and for a long time, of course, I mean, just in my in my experience and the movement here, this wasn't possible because, as I said, people don't know about the rights. And this is not something that can be, in, in, in my eyes and in, in my view, on the shoulders of climate activists, uh, teenagers, children. But this needs to be one inherent part of the work of um human rights movements, human rights organization. It's, it's about mainstreaming the knowledge of those rights that we have and that are we deprived from um, in varying nuances depending on where we are in the world and about actively inviting movements, social movements, environmental movements to the table um, empowering activists um, by very much not just spreading awareness but also about taking up this fight for climate justice from this human rights standpoint and not isolated from each other but but collectively and i think um, i'm a huge fan of, of burden sharing meaning that i do really feel that for the human rights climate justice connection we are dependent on um the awareness from the human rights side um, and from the proactive involvement yeah to to build those bridges um it won't it won't be it won't be climate activists alone that um that do their job and i do especially maybe just talking from a german perspective here for a minute and there's so much to do and it's fighters for future germany actually once declined to um accept a human rights award by an organization that we felt had done so little for any kind of climate justice um work that it felt wrong to take this prize I st feel standing by the sideline and applauding activists sometimes when they do something for human rights, you know, it's not what we need. And by doing that, in a sense, organizations, as good as their work sometimes is become part of the problem. But what we need is really um, a, a global, you know, struggle for human, social, and environmental rights to rise up. And for that, we cannot... Uh, we need everyone. We need everyone to to proactively um, stand up and uh, get started. Um, for everyone to acknowledge that knowledge is power, and knowing about human rights and human rights violations, and um, if that's in the environmental or in the social context, comes along with some responsibility. And um, yeah, I feel we have a long, long way to go there especially, and I think that is also obviously not talking from a white northern perspective, especially around here. What I do also see, of course, but there are people who know much more about that, that this is different in other 
circumstances where climate justice is not a woke narrative, but the guarantee to exist in the future and in the present. Cesar, do you want to, to also um, comment on this? Sure. I think there are two key types of tasks or contributions that the human rights movement can make to climate, to the very urgent existential crisis of climate change. One has to do with more classical but equally important human rights advocacy. So not everything has to be uh, about uh, completely new litigation or fast-breaking uh, jurisprudence, but some more well-established uh, mainstream human rights work is crucial for the uh, climate movement. Uh, what I mean, for instance, is the protection of climate activists, environmental activists in countries like India or uh, throughout Latin America or in the Philippines uh, and elsewhere, the, one of the main threats to climate action is the persecution of those activists who are holding governments and corporations accountable, for example, who are opposing very visibly, visibly very courageously, open pit go uh, uh, coal mines in those and other countries. Uh, so the, this slogan that I like, that someone coined, uh, um, according to which, well, you got the power, we got your back, meaning we'll go to court for you, we will mobilize the, net, the transnational networks of protection so that those at the forefront of the climate um, at the climate struggle can continue to do their courageous job. And, and, and corporations in Canada or governments in the UK and elsewhere will uh, push forward anti-protest laws to try to stem the tide or to, to, to cut the flow of political energy of funding to this uh, movement because they know they can uh, seriously put in, 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 in danger a business, quote unquote, a business model that's no longer sustainable, meaning, for example, uh, continuing to uh, extract uh, fossil fuels. And then on the more kind of forward-looking uh, front, there are a number of new challenges that uh, human rights uh, Uh, activists and organizations need to address. One that uh, we haven't spoken about because we haven't had a chance is actually one of the blind spots limitations of the German constitutional court's uh, uh, ruling, uh, which as uh, some certainly people in this panel know, but uh, it hasn't gotten so much attention in the news. The German constitutional court declined uh, to find in favor of petitioners from Bangladesh and, and Nepal who had Uh, joined independent action to try to hold the German government accountable to, for the types of human rights impacts being felt very tragically already in Nepal or Bangladesh. The court said, well, I'll stop at the, at the, within the boundaries of the German state because that's my jurisdiction. This is the German constitution. And there are very good legal reasons for doing that. But of course, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by them, uh, but uh, but it's probably kind of the mainstream of a constitutional law that stops at the boundaries of, uh, of nation states. Now, climate harms and climate action uh, or climate uh, impacts do not stop at national borders, right? The carbon concentration is planetary. The, you know, carbon doesn't know about uh, national boundaries and, and, and the, the warming of the planet of course, it's a global phenomenon as opposed to a localized uh, phenomenon. So 
pushing the boundaries of national jurisdictions, getting courts in countries like Germany or, the, or Canada or the US and elsewhere, and governments, of course, to acknowledge that it's global South countries that are suffering the worst of, of, of the consequences of the, of the climate crisis is a crucial you know, next frontier of human rights advocacy and litigation. Arpita, do you have also some thoughts? Yeah, I think much has already been said. Uh, I guess one point I'd like to sort of quickly reflect on is on the relationship between social movements and human rights lawyers. Um, I think with the climate crisis, I feel the relationship has to be mediated more with uh, a sense of equity and it has to transform to one where the lawyer starts to surrender power of how legal strategy is built to social movements. Um, I think one of my big learnings uh, through my fieldwork is to understand how the kind of sophisticated uh, processes that social movements have in building legal strategies. So I think as lawyers, we need to sort of, as Cesar said, have their back and support them and sort of translate their legal asks into different kind of venues. And of course, support strategy building, but not colonize it. I think that's what I'd like to sort of leave with. Thank you. Um... I think um, this is this is um, a very uh, perfect um, ending. Um, um, Luisa had to, to leave us already, um, but I want to thank um, yes, I want to thank you, Cesar, and also Arpita, um, and of course also Luisa for, for being with us. And I think yes, I'm very happy now also on how, how we've come around um, to say you know to also describe um, quite positively what what is it that the human rights movement can contribute and something that also we at ECCHR have been discussing is that we do think um, you know strengthening the transnational angle and also exactly you know trying to give space to communities in the global south in debates around climate justice here in Europe is very important and Cesar as you pointed out I think that is also one of the frontiers that need to be pushed it's exactly this question of extraterritorial obligations of states, um, you know, meaning, you know, does the German government not have um, duties towards um, rights bearers in Bangladesh, for example? No. So I think those are some areas that, that we also feel that are very important to push forward. But also, um, I think, as you also, Peter, and well, all of you mentioned, you know, being um, understanding probably the privilege that we have as human rights lawyers, um, the privilege of knowledge that we have, the privilege of access, especially if we're located in Europe or in, uh, in the global north, um, and how, how we can really make use of these privileges so that, that, we can, that they can benefit the agendas and, um, of movements, and especially now that we talk about the climate movement. And, I'm, um, and I think also something that I would want to see more is that we are also connecting the struggles, because you know, there are struggles of the indigenous communities in India, um, for climate justice, and there's the struggle of Fridays for Future here. And, um, and I think, you know, at least in my ideal view, I think also some sorts of transnational litigation can contribute to connecting those, those aims and, you know, to making um, things visible. That um, at least we have tried to develop to some regard on other areas of, of human rights law, and, um, and we do hope to contribute rather soon uh, with that also in the two climate justice struggles. So thank you for so much. I've really learned a lot from you today. Thank you for taking the time. And I do hope, uh, and I guess I know we will continue the good discussion. So thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so Thank you, much. Miriam. Thanks everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.